Welcome to the Eclectic Highway. My name is Kelly Senecal, and I'm thrilled to have Dr. Shabendu Shom from Argonne National Laboratory as my special guest today. Now, this episode is a little on the long side, but if you're interested in the state of the art of simulations when it comes to propulsion technologies and transportation, this is the episode for you. So, without further ado, let's start the interview. So, Shibendu, for listeners who may not know you, can you talk a bit about your background and what your current role is? Absolutely. So, I'm manager of the Computational Multiphysics Research Section in the Energy Systems Division at Argonne National Lab, and I'm also a principal computational scientist. My research focus is on the development of predictive two-phase flow and reacting flow models, essentially leveraging high-performance computing, leadership class computing, and machine learning uh, for piston engines, gas turbines, and also for manufacturing processes more recently. My basic background is in two-phase flows and sprays related to piston engines. That's the topic I got my PhD on. Uh, but over the years, we have evolved on to doing much more. For Argon, I'm co-founder and technical lead for the Virtual Engine Research Institute and Fuels Initiative. Uh, some of you may know this as the Verify program. And this is essentially aimed at providing predictive simulation capabilities for industry. A little bit more about me, actually. So I, I, I moved to Chicago in 2003 and I completed my master's and PhD in 2009 in mechanical engineering from UIC in downtown Chicago. But while I was doing my PhD, I was actually coming to Argonne from 2006 to 2009 uh, to get experimental data, uh, which I used for model development and validation. Uh, I joined Argon in January 2010. I became a principal investigator in 2012. And currently I manage a section consisting about 30, more than 30 researchers, including both staff scientists and postdocs. Uh, for DOE, I am in the leadership team of PACE. PACE stands for Partnership to Advance Combustion Engine Programs, uh, wherein we develop predictive simulation tools together with researchers at other national labs. And I know in your eclectic highway series, Kelly, uh, Cooptima has been brought up multiple times. So for Cooptima, I'm the team lead for the toolkit team where we focus on developing tools that can actually help co-optimize engines and fuels. Yeah, thanks for that. And I definitely have brought up the Cooptima program with both Gina and Robert uh, just last week. So thanks for that introduction, Subendu. It's certainly been uh, a joy for me to kind of see your development in your career ever since I knew you back when, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. Uh, but thank you for that overview. Um, you're certainly involved in a lot of things and definitely helping to to make transportation cleaner. So that's that's really great. So I do want to ask, um, and I say this every time, this is going to sound like a broken record, but I hope I don't have to ask this question <laughs> soon, but I'm going to still ask it because I know it's still a big deal in people's lives. How are you doing right now and how has COVID-19 changed your life during these last few months? Yeah, it's, it's, it's tough. It has been tough. Um, I mean, we are doing well, right? Thank, thank God. Uh, family is doing well. Immediate family, extended family, uh, team members, people at Argonne are doing really well. Uh, so in that sense, uh, thankful. We are thankful for that. But in general, the first month of COVID, uh, things were, uh, were slow for us. But uh, more recently, things have been back to normal. The workload has been 
has increased actually. Uh, me and my team, we continue to work from home and I think we'll continue to work from home in the foreseeable future as well. Um, most of our experimentalists though are back to work. They're running experiments, uh, which I'm really, really happy about, um, happy for them. Um, but maybe I've heard this Kelly, but uh, working from home has uh, more become like living at work actually. So my formal dining room has become my office. My commute has become so easy from uh, <laughs> top stair to the to the dining room, you know. Uh, yeah. But yeah, in general, you know, me and my team are pretty much able to get all the work done from home. Uh, data processing can be challenging sometimes when you're running cases on the supercomputer. Uh, transferring data can be can be challenging, but overall, we are fine. The one thing that uh, that that has been good for me is uh, I used to travel quite a bit, and Kelly, I know you traveled quite a bit as well. Uh, my wife reminded me once that I used to travel about thirty-five to forty percent of my time was spent on road. So that's one thing that I really do not miss that part of traveling, but I certainly do miss going to conferences and meeting people, friends, and colleagues. I really missed SAE this year. I'm sure Kelly, you did too. I mean, SAE is such a fantastic event to meet everyone. Um, so those are the things I'm missing. Uh, but yeah, overall it has been tough, but we have found a way to to manage. Yeah. Yeah, we always find a way to get through it, it seems like. And and I agree with you. For as much complaining as I do of not being able to travel and, and all of that, you know, we're very fortunate that, you know, I'm in, I'm in the same boat you are. I don't have any immediate family sick or anything like that. So, so that's really the important stuff. So, okay, cool. Now, I talked about this already sort of in the introduction, but, you know, you and I have been working together for over 10 years, um, maybe closer to like 13 years, something like that. Um, I think the audience might be interested in hearing how our relationship started and how it has evolved over the years. Can you describe that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely, Kelly. It has really been a pleasure to know you. And uh, maybe some of some of the people don't know that you are actually in my thesis defense committee. And I, I'll elaborate that on that a little bit more. So I, I, I actually was introduced to Converge be, even before it was called Converge. I was essentially a graduate student at UIC. And in the summer of 2006, I actually participated in an industry internship where I worked with engineers on a CFD team who were actually using an internal version of the Converge code. Uh, back then, the code was actually called Moses. And I think my first interaction with you, Kelly, was in conference calls uh, with, with the researchers of that company, uh, talking to you, Eric, and, and Keith, and others in your team through conference calls. So I believe that was one of the first introductions that we had. So once I finished my internship, you know, I went back to UIC and I continued to work with uh, uh, Converge. Well, at that point, it was Moses. And um, for my PhD, I actually improved spray models uh, for which I was uh, getting experimental data from Argon, like I said earlier. Now, spray modeling, as many of your viewers know, apart from many of your specialties, Kelly, spray modeling is actually one of the things that you worked on towards your PhD as well. So that's how we started really interacting more. And uh, you were actually giving me a lot of good advice on how to think about modeling, how to develop modeling, spray models, and how to integrate them with Moses. Uh, so based on this interaction over the years, I actually invited to be part of my thesis committee 
which I finished in 2009. Uh, after finishing my PhD, I actually became a postdoc at Argon. And at that point at Argon, at least for piston engine flows, we were really not doing much CFD. At Argon, we were doing a lot of cool experimental work, but really not much in terms of modeling and simulations. So that's where I actually brought in Converge to Argon as well. So 2020 actually marks, Kelly, you know this, as 10 years of collaboration between Argon and Convergent Science. So we are really happy about that. Mm -hmm. We are too. And then, uh, you know, to the second part of your question, I mean, we have done a lot of collaborative work together. Uh, and if I miss out on something, you can add to it. But in my mind, we have done a lot of cool spray modeling. We have done a lot of work together towards demonstrating grid convergence with RANS and LES in nozzle flows. When we started working with Converge, uh, didn't have capability to do no nozzle flow modeling. That's something that we have done together quite a bit, high performance computing, and really a lot of focus on piston engines uh, initially. I actually fondly remember the days that uh, we used to code, uh, debug codes, run simulations, post-process results, and exchange plots and write papers together, Kelly. Uh, we don't do that anymore, but that's that's fine, I guess. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> sometimes, sometimes I miss it, but <laughs> yeah, I, I do miss it sometimes. But you know, we have come a long way. We are now able to delegate. We have some really smart engineers, postdocs in our uh, groups that are able to do this work. So our our collaboration has really evolved. Now we are providing guidance to people to do this research. Uh, while while we evaluate this, their results. So that's that has been fantastic, actually. And then over the last few years, we have gone beyond piston engines and the Converge, uh, folks at Converge have also gone beyond piston engines. So we have been looking at gas turbines, rotating detonation engines, external aerodynamics, and also material synthesis amongst some of the other applications. Yeah, definitely. We've definitely done a lot together over the years, and um, it's been a pleasure for me as well uh, working with you and your team. And you're right, we have some really great engineers now that can do a lot of the work, and and we can record podcasts. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> but uh, I do want to say, I think I think the audience may get a kick out of this, and hopefully you're okay with me saying this, Shabendu. But there's a little bit of a friendly feud going on between Shabendu and Reiner Rothbauer who manages our European uh, team for Convergent Science, they both claim to be the first Converge user, um, sort of outside of the early developers and things like that. So you want to say anything about that? You want to take a stab at Reiner? Or <laughs> I like Reiner, actually, but uh, maybe it doesn't matter who was the first. I think it's probably more important to see who has, who has done more with the code. And I think I certainly beat Reiner hands down in terms of... Uh, publications and citations with with converge so if reiner wow, is listening you, if reiner is listening you put the gloves on <laughs> you put the gloves on i'm going to have to get reiner on here to give his side of the story <laughs> yeah of course this is all in fun but certainly certainly you've done um, wow if you look at your 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 library of publications certainly you have published a ton you and your team so we really appreciate that you've done a lot of really great work not only collaborating with us but also without us um, independently so so cool. So we'll put that one to bed for now, but maybe we'll we'll raise that issue again in the future when I have Reiner on the show. Yeah, whenever we have the next face-to-face -face meeting for Converge User <laughs> Conference. <laughs> yeah, hopefully we have that uh, sometime in the next couple of years. I hope so too. Um, 
Okay, so now back to the kind of back to the lecture at hand here. Um, you know, this is the eclectic highway. We talk about the future of transportation and where we see things going. Um, I'm curious. So as you know, we're going through a very interesting time right now in the transportation space. Right. I'm curious, where do you see the future of the internal combustion engine going? Yeah, that, that's a very good question. That's a question being in a Department of Energy National Lab. We, we think about it. We talk about it quite a bit not only within the lab, but also with Department of Energy. And I have been doing a lot of my reading. I, I, I certainly talk to you quite a bit and many of the others who have been at the Ecliptic Highway uh, series, I've spoken to them. In general, what I'm seeing and reading is that indeed many disruptions are being expected in the transportation sector in the next three to five years. But the thing to remember is that a sustainable and a secure mobility future requires a balanced portfolio of hybrids piston engines and EVs to ensure that we are using the correct technology for the right applications. And I know, Kelly, you will say that this sounds like a broken record and many people have said this at multiple forums, but, but this is really the truth, I guess. The right technology can essentially deliver the best efficiency with the lowest possible emissions while meeting user constraints, right? <clears throat> and also from a wells to wheels perspective, the right technology has the potential to essentially enable engine-based solutions for efficiency and criteria pollutant emissions that are comparable to or maybe even better than EVs. Now, as we know, Kelly, uh, modern internal combustion engines are very clean, but there is an opportunity to make them even cleaner by developing net zero or low carbon fuel options and then co-optimizing these fuels together with engine architecture and combustion recipes. Um, I honestly believe that more than the engine architecture itself, I believe that low carbon fuels will have a larger role for combustion engines to remain competitive or even superior option to electric vehicles. I'll again give a plug for uh, Department of Energy's Co-Optima program. It's actually an ex excellent step in this direction. And again, Kelly, I, I assume you and your viewers are quite familiar with this since we have spoken about this quite a bit. And in general, as combustion engineers, you know, we need to work more closely with fuel manufacturers as we move forward. While there is significant research opportunities for combustion engines in stationary power generation space, even for the transportation sector, I envision that internal combustion engines will remain the preferred powertrain for multiple reasons, as many of other speakers have also spoken in the past. Yeah, that's a very nice summary, and, and I completely agree with you. Um, having this diverse portfolio of options, I think, is very important. I think uh, moving to you know lower carbon fuels, renewable fuels, biofuels, and things like that will also really kind of make the IC engine very competitive um, well into the future. So, so definitely. So that was a really good summary. So what I want to get to with you, though, more specifically, because you're a simulation guy and your your team there. Uh, does simulations primarily. Mm -hmm. How do you see simulations contributing to the future that you just described? Yeah, I actually see simulations playing a huge role um, in the multiple energy scenarios that we are looking at. You know, being at a national lab, I have the pleasure to see how other communities are actually using modeling and simulations, just not the reacting flow community, which we are a part of. So in general, I can actually summarize that the goal of simulations 
is to reduce time to science and reduce the cost of testing and prototyping. It's just not in our community, in all communities, that's the goal. In, in general, industry is going to continue using RANs to design engines. And given that the product design timescales are short, you know, industry may not have the opportunity to develop models, new submodels, etc. So I think it's our responsibility uh, as academics and uh, national lab researchers uh, to really uh, ensure that we continue to improve models and, and wherever it's possible or wherever it's needed. Now, this not only necessitates excellent experimental data, but also direct numerical simulation type of calculations. So I envision that DNS, direct numerical simulations, will actually play a huge role moving forward. You know, with the evolution of some of the national lab codes, we have the opportunity to perform some really heroic gold standard calculations to provide data on insulin turbulence, heat transfer, initial flame kernel growth, etc. that is nearly impossible to measure with experiments. So I see such heroic cal calculations really playing a larger role in improving computational tools like Converge, for example. Now the tools will improve as we are able to do these DNS calculations, the tools will improve, the tools will become more predictive because we will be able to resolve more physics and model less. And I know Kelly, you have been saying this quite a bit uh, in multiple uh, presentations as well. The other thing that's happening is that we are able to use higher order methods um, in simulations and this will only increase as we move forward. So the simulations will have lesser and lesser numerical artifacts, which is a good thing. And with high performance computing, you know, uh, IC simulations being able to simulate larger and larger domains. For example, we have done a lot of work on coupling nozzle flow and combustion chambers to co-optimize them together. I envision that we'll be coupling engine out emissions with after treatment systems dynamically as well as we move into the future. So that's that's on the on the computational science side, right? But in parallel, uh, there have been favorable developments uh, for uh, the hardware itself, right? So in general, uh, there has been rapid growth in HPC, and um, we say this all the time. But yesterday's supercomputer is today's laptop, and today's supercomputer will be a laptop uh, in ten years from now. So computing power is really a uh, like booming, right? And in general, collaborations between domain scientists and computational scientists are resulting in better codes and architectures than spaghetti type of coding. So I have I've talked a bit about what and why simulations will be vital towards nation's energy security. But to specifically answer your question, just not CFD, but I believe multi-physics and multi-scale simulations that are tightly coupled will really transform the way we envision product design in the future. Digital twins are already being used and are already playing a significant role in OEMs and their role will only increase in future. Simulations that help with co-optimization will also have larger impacts moving forward rather than single component level simulations. Uh, just like I said earlier, you know, fully and dynamically coupled nozzle flow and combustion chamber simulations, if they're integrated with models for material erosion, conjugate heat transfer, can really revolutionize the way we think about uh, design of components, right? 
I also think with hybrid powertrains, we'll require to co-optimize engines and electric motors together with after-treatment systems in mind. I also think, uh, as I mentioned before, co-optimization of engines and fuels are critical as we move forward. And here as well, validated simulation tools can really expedite the process of fuel evaluations for different combustion recipes. So, Kelly, I know this is a long answer, but uh, I see simulations uh, playing a huge role in all these ways as we move forward, not only in our community, but across multiple communities. So this is a good time to be uh, a, a person doing multi-physics, multi-scale simulations, and this is a fantastic time if you have expertise in high-performance computing and AI machine learning. I completely agree with that. And and yeah, that was a long answer, but I appreciate it because it really kind of summarized a lot of different things that I think our listeners are going to really enjoy hearing. And and for me, it it's good to hear too. Um, clearly, I'm a simulation guy as well. So I believe in all of this. Um, you know, there have been some, as you know, I post on LinkedIn quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And there was someone recently who was sort of downplaying CFD and the future of CFD saying, you know, there aren't going to be a lot of jobs and things like that. And I don't know where that guy's coming from because I believe it's just going to grow more and more and more and more. And that's kind of what you're saying as well. So lots of opportunity for simulations. Yeah, absolutely. And this is just not for our community, Kelly. I mean, having having eyes on what other communities are doing, uh, being fortunate to have such opportunities, I, I see that simulations Multi-physics, multi-scale simulations playing a big role in multiple communities. So uh, good times. To piggyback off that a little bit, you know, I had Robert Wagner from Oak Ridge National Lab, uh, who I know you know very well. He was on my show last time, and he talked mm-hmm. about the idea of big science and how that's influencing the transportation industry. So can you talk a bit about what types of big science facilities you have access to at Argonne? Yeah, absolutely. Um uh, this is one of my favorite things to talk about, actually. Uh, but before I go there, I must I must say that uh, I the first full podcast that I have heard is between you and Robert. I have heard through other podcasts as well, but not fully. But I really enjoyed listening to the full podcast that that you and Robert did last week. Well, hold on, hold on. Full <laughs> podcast of any podcasts or full podcast of my podcast? Your podcast. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I gave you a way out there, Savendu. You didn't take it. (laughs) (laughs) No, no. I mean, I I listened to interesting parts, but I haven't had the opportunity to listen to the whole thing, right? I know. It's hard to the whole thing. It's hard to create the time. It's hard to create the time. But hopefully after you've been on the show now, uh, you'll at least listen to the whole episode of this one. (laughs) But yeah, I get it. I get it. So sorry. Go go ahead there. No, no, absolutely. So uh, yeah, this this is a fantastic topic, one of my favorite topics to talk about. And I I think of National Labs as a source for data knowledge and tools. Uh, Robert, I know Robert also thinks about National Labs in this way. And uh, the National Labs system uh, for your viewers, I guess, is is designed so that we we are complementary to each other's expertise. So at Argonne, you know, uh, we have many big science tools. Maybe I'll talk about a couple of them that are relevant to this discussion. The first is, of course, the supercomputing capability, the leadership computing capability that we have at Argonne. Uh, Currently, we have the supercomputer Theta. Uh, I'll talk about that a little bit. And then we also have advanced photon source uh, APS. 
So APS provides bright X-ray beams for research in almost all scientific disciplines, actually. Uh, we use X-rays to study fuel sprays. Dr. Chris Powell at Argon has been the PI of this project for many years now. And I know he's uh, one of your keynote speakers moving forward as well. And, you know, APS is being used uh, by Nobel laureates, actually, to conduct their research. So it's really a big science tool. It gives us data that we actually cannot get using other tools. So it's really fantastic if you're doing simulations because you get access to data that, that you cannot otherwise. And I can give more examples along those lines as well. Now, the second big science tool that we have is essentially leadership computing. The goal is to provide unprecedented computing power that really cannot be afforded in industry and companies, you know. So with this computing power, the goal is to perform first of its kind simulations for scientific discovery. So currently for DOE, Argon hosts this Theta supercomputer, which is essentially a Cray system with 11.69 petaflops. Uh, computing power, essentially one petaflop means that you can perform 10 to the power of 15 floating point operations per second. So that's that's a lot. I'll pause for a second, but 10 power 15 floating power point operations per second is what this machine can do. Now, I'm really excited about Aurora. Uh, it's going to come out uh, soon. It's going to be the first exascale supercomputer uh, and Argon is going to host this supercomputer for DOE. And this, is, this supercomputer is expected to break the exascale barrier in US. Uh, and uh, exascale is essentially 10 power 18 floating point operations per second. And uh, with this supercomputer, we, we envision that we'll be able to do more and more DNS type of calculations moving forward. So for, for Aurora, this big science tool, we expect that the production jobs can be run somewhere in the 2022-2023 timeframe. Yeah, I really look forward uh, to Aurora coming online as well. Um, so how are these resources that you've just described directly influencing the scope of simulations that can be done? Yeah, I mean, it's good to have these big science tools, Kelly, but if you cannot use them, it's it's basically a waste of taxpayers' money, right? So uh, we spend a lot of time in using these big science tools appropriately, right? So uh, I can give many examples, but maybe I'll start off with this uh, APS example first, right? So, uh, you know, with APS, uh, 10 years back, if someone told me that, you know, you will be able to see inside a metal injector during transient operation, and you'll be able to see cavitation, I would have told that person, you're kidding me. But now that's possible. Dr. Chris Powell and his team do that routinely, uh, you know, and uh, that's 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 a tool without this APS tool that, that physics, that discovery would not just have happened, right? Similarly, in the computing world, um, your question was more focused about simulations and computing. In the computing world, um, across the communities, right, we think about uh, high-performance computing in two ways. One is capability computing, and the other is capacity computing. And uh, I know, Kelly, I have spoken about this quite a bit in multiple uh, presentations, uh, so probably the viewers know this, but maybe let me introduce these concepts again for the viewers, uh, mm -hmm. listeners, sure. I guess. So yeah, one, is <laughs> yeah. uh, one is capability computing. Here, the whole idea is that uh, you have thousands and thousands of processors 
and use these processors or cores to do one of its kind simulations. So typically direct numerical simulations or boundary resolved LES type of calculations. Recently, we actually used NEC 5000 code that we have developed at Argon to run DNS of an engine uh, without combustion uh, on more than 51,000 processors. And by doing this computation, uh, we were able to glean new insights into the heat transfer and in-cylinder turbulence uh, uh, happening in this engine. Now, these simulations just would not be imaginable in a cluster, right? If you need 51,000 processors or more to do a simulation, it just won't happen in a, in a regular cluster. Now, the other extreme is what we call in the computing world as capacity computing. And again, I have spoken about this, but I'll still introduce capacity computing. The whole idea with capacity computing is you are still using thousands and thousands of cores, but instead of running one or two very high fidelity simulations, you end up running thousands of medium fidelity simulations. Now you can use these simulations to do uncertainty quantification, design optimization, machine learning based optimization and whatnot. So uh, most recently we actually worked with the Ramco services com company. This was a collaborative project between Argon, Convergence Science and Aramco where we actually performed piston bowl, bowl and combustion recipe optimization on the supercomputer. So with supercomputing and the scalable code like Converge, we were able to run so many calculations in a short span. And we, we have papers on this uh, work where we have shown that we have brought down design time from months to days. So, uh, so clearly, you know, having these resources can really bring a step change in the way we do uh, simulations. Absolutely. So you brought up something in, in that response that I want to touch on a little more deeply. You talked about machine learning just briefly there. And as you know, as our listeners know as well, you know, machine learning is a hot topic. It's found its way essentially into almost every field of research, it seems like. Uh, your team is using it to help improve future propulsion systems. Uh, which is very relevant to this conversation. Can you describe how you started down that path and how you're using machine learning? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I can I can give you a 30-second answer and I can give you a five-minute answer. Uh, maybe the five-minute answer is, is interesting for your viewers, uh, listeners, sorry, uh, who are interested to learn about machine learning. Uh, so essentially, you know, I was introduced to machine learning at Argon during my early days as a staff scientist in 2012-2013. Uh, we were working on running large-scale simulations and performing global sensitivity analysis to understand which chemical reactions have more sensitivity towards engine performance. So in 2012-2013, we were not running thousands of cases routinely. But for this project, we actually ran thousands of cases of a compression ignition engine in a short time. And we used the global sensitivity analysis tool uh, to understand which reactions had more importance for uh, specific engine parameters, for example. Now, once we finished this exercise, we realized that uh, maybe machine learning tools could have been used and maybe machine learning tools would have given us more insights than, than using global sensitivity analysis. So, so that was uh, our first foray into this, but we actively started working on machine learning 
in the 2016-2017 timeframe on a couple of projects. So uh, we were working on design optimizations again and we were using GA, genetic algorithms, and what we found was that it was uh, slow because at the end of the day, you would have to run eight cases and figure out what's the best case and then run seven more or run eight more. You know, so it's a very sequential batch process. And if you have to run a large scale optimization with many input and control parameters, it would take months to go through the whole campaign. So instead of doing that, what we did was we used high performance computing and we ran thousands of cases within this input parameter space all at the same time. And then we use these thousands of cases to train a machine learning model. Now, the first machine learning model we used, uh, our surrogate was not that good, but we refined the surrogate as we move along. And then this ML-based surrogate model to CFD, we fed this ML-based surrogate model to a genetic algorithm optimizer. Instead of feeding the CFD, we actually fed the ML algorithm. And this really sped up things because we didn't have to wait for CFD to finish, right? Because we were running all the CFD upfront. So that was our first project. At the same time, a couple of other people in my team, uh, we have our own flamelet-based approach for doing combustion modeling. And we, we wanted to use full chemistry. We didn't want to use uh, reduced chemistry mechanisms. Uh, now, when we are using a full chemistry with, uh, with uh, flamelet type of models, our table sizes were becoming very, very big, and that was really cumbersome and really slowing down our simulations. So essentially what we did was instead of using these large tables, we essentially trained neural networks and we were using neural networks uh, for the simulations. And that really helped us run large-scale chemistry calculations with LES in the 2016, 2017, 2018 timeframe. Now, one thing we learned, you know, there is a reason I am giving you this history. Uh, one thing we learned from this was that you can use simple off-the-shelf ML tools and they, 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 are, they can be useful, you know, they offer nice solutions. But what we quickly found out was that they were not generalizable. They needed a lot of work for large-scale adoption. So uh, we were fortunate to be at Argon, Kelly, you know, uh, at Argon at this point, there were a lot of workshops that were happening and uh, the lab in general was very interested in AI and machine learning. And we participated in these workshops. I encouraged my team members to participate in this workshop. And we got connected with multiple other people in, in different divisions who were also using machine learning and who were actually developing some of the machine learning tools. So that really helped us improve our expertise on AI machine learning. Uh, at this point, you know, to your listeners, I would say that uh, it's, it's, it's really easy to get some basic training on AI machine learning uh, through Coursera, LinkedIn Learning, and things like that. Now, the lab has, has come a long way, actually, Kelly. So uh, I'll, I'll tell you uh, a funny anecdote. Maybe it's not funny, but, uh, you know, many people at the lab now believe that AI will not replace scientists at Argonne, but scientists that use AI may replace scientists who do not. Uh, so, so that's a powerful statement. <laughs> yeah, I'll remember that one. <laughs> yeah, I have used that quite a bit, you know. And I mean, maybe for your listeners, you know, it, uh, it may be useful to know that we currently use Python, TensorFlow, and SkyKit Learn uh, for doing our AI ML work. Uh, 
but one thing I will caution is, um, you know, not to overpromise with AI. You know, AI is not magic. Uh, I have now read some papers. I have read some some press releases where AI almost um, is made to sound like magic. So one thing we need to think about is, you know, if something is not achievable in the past decade using big science tools, why do we think AI would help you solve this problem now? You know, that's 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 something we need to think about. That's a, that's a very good thing to think about, and that's a really nice segue into my next question. Actually, why do you think the timing is right for using AI? Why now? Yeah, yeah, that that's a good question. At the lab, we think about this quite a bit. You know. Um, and there are several re- reasons I believe that uh, that now is the right time uh, to 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 research more with AI, and uh, I'll give you my my two cents on this. So, essentially, you know, predictive tools are enabling us to provide more data. In the past, there was only experimental data, but with predictive tools like Converge and Ec5000, we are able to also get more synthetic data. Uh, that help us train AI ML methods. So that's that's very important. As we all know, machine learning is hungry for data. Unless the data is is a lot, and unless the data is good, it's essentially garbage in, garbage out. The second thing that's happening now is that all the future, well, not all, but most of the future leadership class machines are going to be hybrid. By hybrid, I mean they're going to have CPUs and GPUs. So the GPUs are essentially designed to do AI machine learning work. So uh, there is impetus for us to do more AI ML because of the computing architecture. Now, the third thing that's happening, at least happening at national labs, is we see that computational scientists, domain scientists, and mathematicians are actually willing to collaborate more. While there are many tools and algorithms available in the math communities, they really have not been hardened for applications. So typically, they are used on idealized synthetic data. Now, with the communication between computational scientists, domain scientists, and mathematicians, these AI ML tools are being used uh, for applications, and uh, that's really uh, making them more useful. You know, so so in, in th- those are the primary reasons in in my mind that I think uh, it's it's a right time uh, to 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 use AI in science domains. And like I said earlier, you know, AI is not magic. You cannot use AI for all problems, but uh, maybe for your listeners, uh, I have, uh, I can think of three problems that I think uh, AI will do fantastic, you know. Um, So the first problem I think of is really causalities in rare events. Uh, So Kelly, we have been doing simulations for a long time and we know that you know, there is cyclic variability in engines, and we know that uh, you have high cycles, low cycles, and essentially these high cycles, low cycles are rare events, and uh, this has, these, these, these events have evaded common human understanding, right? So we really don't know what's causing these high cycles, low cycles. So, uh, so I think that's where AI machine learning can play a role, you know? In general, for rare events, data is sparse, and the data is usually usually characterized by tails of the distribution. However, with more predictive simulations and HPC, we can potentially have more data as we near these unstable operation conditions leading to rare events. I also believe that once we fuse experimental and modeling data, 
AI can then help us understand these causalities for rare events. We have a lot of ideas on this topic actually and uh, both relevant for piston engines and gas turbines. So, so to me, AI can help with understanding causalities of rare events, that's one. I think, uh, I think AI can also help a lot with data processing. Uh, you know, I, I am a firm believer that data should not be sitting idle. You know, once you are generating the data, post-processing should actually start in situ and be automated. Uh, and many may disagree, but I also feel that uh, in future, we will not be storing much data. I envision that we'll actually be storing much cheaper and lighter versions of, of the data through learned models that actually represent the data. Uh, I also think that uh, ML-based surrogate models that represent physics uh, is another topic that uh, is gaining a lot of momentum. And I, I think that will be relevant for the reacting flow community as well. So, so in my opinion, uh, the timing is ripe for AI. And I, I listed three classes of problems where I think for the reacting flow community, AI will really help. Yeah, uh, uh, definitely, and I agree with I agree with what you said about the future of data as well. Um, I think we're going to have to come up with ways to intelligently store data, just based on the size of the simulations that we're doing now. Right? They just keep getting bigger and bigger. Um, but so you, we've talked a bit about HPC and machine learning or, or AI um, mm -hmm. so far. Can you give some specific examples of what you and your team have been able to accomplish? with HPC and machine learning? Yeah, absolutely, you know. Uh, I can give multiple examples. Uh, <clears throat> maybe I'll start with uh, something that I already touched upon earlier, which is essentially design optimizations. So earlier in the discussion, we talked about MLGA, and we talked about the fact that, uh, that MLGA is much faster than using regular GA with CFD. Uh, now, in terms of examples, what we found was we find that MLGA is still slow, you know, because you have to run a lot of simulations up front. So more recently, we have been doing active learning, wherein based on a few simulations that we run, we actively decide on the next set of simulations. So instead of running a large ensemble up front, we run only a few cases and decide what, what will we run next. So in terms of cost savings, this actually saves us from running a lot of simulations. And going from GA to MLGA essentially reduced the simulation campaign from months to days. But now by using active learning, we are able to reduce the simulation time by half again. So just to put all of this into context for a compression ignition engine, say we are using 360 degree mesh and we want to perform optimizations using HPC and machine learning, uh, say we want to run 2,000 cases, you know, this, this campaign would take two to three months in the past. Now with all these enhancements with HPC, MLGA, and active learning, uh, we are able to bring down these run times from four to seven days to obtain an optimum design. Uh, so that's really cutting down design time by orders of magnitude. Uh, the second example that I like to give is on flow field emulation, actually. Um, <clears throat> uh, you, me, we do a lot of, uh, we have done a lot of spray work and we have done a lot of nozzle flow work together as well. We know that nozzle flow simulations are extremely expensive because, 
you need to have really small time steps in the order of nanoseconds to, to resolve phase change. And you need to have um, uh, spatial resolution in the order of one to five microns to really capture boundary layer effects uh, with LES. Now, uh, what we are working towards at Argon is developing emulators for the flow field so that once you have trained our emulators with enough number of flow fields for injector flows, with say different initial boundary conditions, needle wobble, fuel property conditions. For any new condition, we would not need to run new simulations again. Rather, we can actually use the emulated flow field through encoders, through autoencoders, and through decoders. We should be able to provide you the new flow field at the nozzle exit at a fraction of cost. Uh, we, are, we have developed this approach, we are currently testing a lot of this approach and uh, I'm happy to say that we are able to predict flow fields with changing fuel properties for now. And we are working on publication on this topic as well. The third topic where I feel we have made a lot of impact with HPC and AI is uh, in terms of using full chemistry for engine simulations, right? So um, for the longest time, you know, we have been plagued uh, with the need uh, we have been plagued uh, by the fact that we run reduced chemistry mechanisms uh, and we are not able to run detailed mechanisms because they are prohibitively expensive. Now, I talked about this neural network approach a little bit earlier in this episode. And uh, with this neural network approach that we have developed, uh, we are now able to run full chemistry mechanisms with high fidelity LES and HPC. So, so in terms of impact, what we have shown is that these simulations can predict mixing, liftoff length, and engine out soot much better than um, reduced mechanisms can. So in a compression ignition modeling sense, uh, these uh, we are able to actually run full chemistry thanks to HPC and some of the neural network techniques that we have employed. Yeah, and these techniques and along with HPC have really, like you said, have really helped us push the boundaries on these simulations. And you and your team are definitely doing, you know, you guys are on the forefront of a lot of that. So uh, it's been a pleasure to follow your work and to, you know, collaborate with you on some of it. But, you know, you've really taken this HPC and AI uh, theme and kind of taken it really far within the transportation community. So um, very nice work on that. I really, uh, I'm a big fan. So. Thank you. And no again, it wouldn't be possible, you know, without having codes like Converge Next 5000 that scale well. So, so uh, we are we are we are also very fortunate and and uh, enjoy collaborating with with Convergent Science. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, it's a win-win for sure. Um, okay. So we talked about you know kind of what you've been working on and what you're working on currently. Can you briefly go over maybe some future projects or some things that are coming down the pike that you're going to be working on soon that our, our listeners might be interested in learning about? Uh, absolutely, Kelly. Uh, so we are, I mean, uh, I can talk about so many projects and uh, I can talk for an hour, I guess, but that's not possible. So I'll probably, you know, highlight maybe three projects that, that, uh, that talk about HPC and AI and how we'll be using HPC and AI in the near future. So the first project maybe I'll highlight is this uh, partnership to advance combustion engine space uh, project that I touched upon earlier. So it's a vehicle technologies office a project funded by uh, Department of Energy, actively managed by Dr. Mike Weiss-Miller. 
and uh, it's a multi-lab project where the goal is to bring real HPC and AI machine learning developments for light duty engine simulations, right? And like I said earlier, this is now for light duty, but we envision it will be useful for medium and heavy duty as well. So under this project, um, Argon and Sandia National Lab are going to be performing DNS of relevant engine processes using supercomputing. Then we will be using these DNS data sets uh, to develop sub-models for, for example, initial flame kernel formation and growth in cylinder heat transfer, for example. Now, all this work will be tightly coupled with experimentalists at Argon, Oak Ridge National Lab, and Sandia National Lab as well. Uh, experiments are key to validation of these sub-models that are developed. I'm, I mean, I've been uh, doing simulations for some time now, but I'm particularly excited about this project because uh, in my opinion, this is the first time I'm seeing such a deliberate and concerted effort to improve sub-models that can then be implemented in codes like Converge. So again, experiments provide a nice solution. Experiments provide global data, but direct numerical simulations provide you much more insights that can be used to develop sub-models, which eventually the industry uses. I'm fortunate to be in the leadership team of this project, and that provides me an opportunity to guide some of the research pathways here. The second uh, project that I'm really excited about uh, is, uh, um, is a little bit on a different focus. It's more on aircraft engines. So we recently were awarded a high-performance computing for energy innovation project with Raytheon. Uh, so typically, um, aircraft engines, as you know, Kelly, they operate at very high pressures with uh, small engine cores. And this really tends to bring a lot of hot gases closer to the walls and really increases the thermal load on the combustor liners and turbine uh, blades. So essentially for designing cooling passages, etc., computationally tractable simulations are used. Now the problem with these simulations is that the wall models are not able to capture the rich physics prevalent in practical configurations. So at Argon, we'll perform wall-resolved simulations of a number of aircraft engine configurations using the NEC 5000 code that I talked about earlier, and we'll be leveraging supercomputer theta as well. Now we'll take the high-fidelity simulation data generated from these simulations and then train a less computationally expensive, deep learning-based uh, spatial emulator to capture the near wall heat transfer. Now the surrogate model will be able to realize many of the accuracy benefits of the high fidelity simulation because we are training it based on wall result calculations, but the cost will be very, very less because it's a trained model essentially. So essentially we are creating physics informed deep learning models that can be trained on a wide range of initial conditions to solve problems much more uh, efficiently. Uh, you know, and, and, not by, and not sacrificing the predictive capability at all. Uh, the third project I'll talk about is, is on sprays. I have to say something about sprays, right? So, uh, so we were recently awarded a Department of Energy project uh, in collaboration with Colorado State University and another OEM, where our goal is to develop predictive simulation capabilities with propane as a fuel. So this ties back to what I said earlier during this discussion. Uh, propane is actually a fascinating low carbon fuel. However, uh, 
simulating propane is very challenging because uh, it is expected to be supercritical during injection because it's because of its uh, critical pressure and temperature. So there has been this debate in the community, Kelly, and you have participated in some of this as well. Uh, now it's established that diesel and gasoline fuels are really not supercritical during injection, but propane could be. You know, now of course modeling uh, supercritical mixtures is not trivial since equations of states are not well known and other properties are not very well defined. But what happens with propane is even more interesting. As propane gets injected, uh, there is a sudden expansion process at the nozzle exit, which causes it to condense. So how do we model this, right? It's, 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 it's a beast. It's very difficult to model because it may start off as supercritical and then be subcritical again and then become supercritical again, right? So in some ways, the chemistry part is much easier, but we are really excited to develop the, the, the injection component and the injection modeling component of this. So those were the three projects that, uh, that I would like to highlight. There are many more, but I think uh, for the sake of time, I would stop here, I guess, Kelly. Yeah, and I'm looking forward to seeing the progress on all three of those, all three of those projects I agree. They seem really exciting. Um, very, very cool. So we are pretty much done with the interview now, uh, but you've listened to one full episode, Robert, so you know <laughs> you know that I had a special question at the end. I had to throw that in one more time. But I have a special question here on the end, just to, just to keep it kind of, you know, to end on a lighter note. Right. Can, can you think of one fun fact about yourself that our listeners might not be aware of? Yeah, Kelly, I, I can say this, but I hope it doesn't come back to haunt me, right? So, uh, <laughs> uh, so yeah, well, uh, it may not seem very obvious by looking at me, but I'm a pretty sporty guy, actually. I can move pretty fast. Uh, uh, I was actually the intramural badminton champion for four consecutive years, years at UIC. I played a lot of badminton during my undergrad and school days as well. And then Kelly, you will also attest to this uh, that my ping pong skills are also pretty good. I couldn't beat the the convergent science champion, but uh, but I I think I did pretty well. Uh, the other thing, you know, fun fact about me is uh, I love cooking. Um, I enjoy making exotic Indian spicy spicy dishes, uh, and this skill has uh, been further honed during this COVID lockdown times and. Um, and my wife and my kid are really enjoying my cooking. Oh wow! I love Indian food. Maybe I can, uh, maybe maybe I can have dinner with you sometime. Something that you absolutely, up. absolutely. Yeah, and I do want. I do want. I'm not going to let the ping pong thing go because I have to just warn our listeners. You know, if you're ever if you ever end up with Shabendu around a ping pong table, he will try to convince you that he hasn't played ping pong in years and that he's terrible, and then he will proceed to destroy you in ping pong. <laughs> <laughs> so don't believe him when he says he's not very good and hasn't played in a while. Don't believe him. He's very good. Yes, you didn't beat uh, Yan Hang, who's kind of our – I think he's ranked in the state, though. He's actually like a really good ping pong player. Um, so anyway, you did you did a good job. Uh, but that's that's really it, Sabendu. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time out today to speak to me. And, you know, this is a really um, – Really fun time for me and really exciting work you have going on here. And I really look forward to seeing kind of where this work uh, takes us in the future. So thanks a lot for joining me. Absolutely, Kelly. And thank you very much for inviting me. This has been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. And uh, 
I really enjoyed your questions and uh, I hope the listeners find a lot of value to the, some of the responses that, that I provided. And again, thank you very much for inviting me, Kelly. Yeah, and hopefully we can uh, be in the same place together sometime in the near future, maybe hug some engines together. But I look forward to seeing you soon. So thanks again. Thank you very much, Kelly, and take care and stay safe. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So that's it for episode 11 of The Eclectic Highway. I want to thank Shabendu once again for coming on the show. I had a great time talking to him about all the latest research at Argonne, and I hope you guys enjoyed listening. And if you did enjoy listening, please consider subscribing to The Eclectic Highway at Spotify or Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or really any of your favorite podcast apps. So that's it for me for this episode. Until next time, guys, remember, the future is eclectic. Eclectic.